Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. Tom, how are you doing? I am good. And uh, on this episode, we have a bit of a special guest. Uh, we teased in the last episode that we'll be having uh, friends of the podcast on to talk about some of the backlist titles. And this week, uh, to talk about The Conqueror, um, we have Chad Post, uh, publisher of Open Letter Books. Hey, Chad. Hey, Tom. Hey, Lori. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, so I mean, last season, Lori and I had a really great time talking backlist, and we could probably do that incessantly. But we thought it'd also be fun for folks to hear from some other people, get some other perspectives, and also, frankly, like bring in other people and their recommendations. Um, now, you didn't recommend this one, but uh, we also figured you wouldn't exactly shy away from talking about one of the one of your books. So yeah. here we are. No, I'm happy to talk about anything and everything as long as you want. This is a book that Tom introduced me to, and it's a great book. And I'm embarrassed to say that I'd never heard of the author or the book. Of course, I've heard of Chad Post and Open Letter, <laughs> but um, it's going to be a fun discussion today, I think. I think so too. Yeah, it's been it's been ages since I've read this. So Really, really pulling out the pulling out the stops in my my aging memory here, but it'll be fun. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of the point of backlist. We think is make sure that we can you can pull anything up from any time, and it's just a matter of the quality, right? And frankly, that's why like presses like Open Letter exist is to make sure books like this find their way into the world and and kind of yeah kind of can lurk out there and be discovered or rediscovered at, at any time. On that note, um, Chad, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the publication story around The Conqueror? Because it's, I mean, from, I think you've mentioned a little bit of it to me in the past in just other conversations, um, I mean, from quite a while ago. But this is one of the earlier books that Open Letter published, right? Yeah, I was trying to remember if it was in the very first season that we did or the second <clears throat> but it's one of the first two, like it's one of the first year of books that Open Letter produced, pu published. And the way that it came about is actually through E.J. Van Lannan. E.J. Van Lannan was at Echo for a time and then worked at Delkey very briefly and then left with me to come to Rochester to start Open Letter. And he was very obsessed with The, the Seducer, the first book in the trilogy, which I may still be mispronouncing his name, but we were always told to say it's sort of like Jan Sharstad. Um, and anyone who's Norwegian can correct that as they as they want to do. But um, but he had read The Seducer when Overlook brought it out and really liked it and then talked to Overlook about the other books. And they weren't interested in publishing the follow ups at all because The Seducer didn't do well enough for them to continue with the trilogy, um, which is sort of frustrating because I mean, I think he was he was in particular really invested and had me read The Seducer right away, which I did. Um, I even remember where I was when I was reading it, it was at the Ledig House in Art Omai, uh, north of Hudson in New York at the wonderful like art center and writers retreat. And I read it over that the weekend. It's a pretty big book, but it was like very compelling, very engrossing. And we were able to get the rights into The Conqueror and The Discoverer with the idea that at one point in time, we would be able to do all three of them simultaneously or side by side. 
Um, so he was the inspiration or like the, 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 the driving force behind the initial acquisitions of it. And then it became like a, a trilogy that we really promoted and loved and really kind of made a good representation of what Open Letter wanted to do of kind of finding those, those great authors that were either overlooked or were like in some way neglected. And in this case, like how bizarre would it have been to have like one volume that really does tease the whole enterprise since all three, all three volumes, maybe you can read them standalone-ish because they each are self-contained in a way, but they provide three different perspectives with three different structures on one person's life. So not to have the other two is almost like, like a literary crime of sorts. So we decided to do both of them and it was at a point in time when we were still doing paper over board books. So that's why it's a, like a really nice, cool book, which we, which we don't have any stock of anymore. I think we have like two copies squirreled away in my office and literally in a drawer under a under a pile of other things so that nobody can sell them and nobody can take them. And so that we have them forever. But um, but that was like that was back when we were doing the paper over board and really like producing. I mean, I think those books are absolutely beautiful and absolutely beautiful objects to hold. And Conquer and Discover are two of the ones with like the coolest covers. Like they're very slick, sort of Nordic, um, Ikea, uh, Scandinavian chic. Um, and I love it. And I, and, I, and I did fall in love with the books as well and absolutely adored them. And we even brought him over for a big tour at one point in time when The Discoverer came out. We, we had him come to Rochester, New York, and then I forget where we went from there possibly Chicago as well. Like I wouldn't have been surprised if we had done something there, but I, I honestly can't remember. I found on our, on our, on our website, on our 3% uh, blog website, a reference to the tour, but never any details. Chad, um, how did you find the translator for, for these books? I think her name is Barbara. Havland. Barbara Havland. Yeah, yes. So the agency that was involved with this, or Aushag, they were, um, that I know I'm mispronouncing, but I can never remember how you do it right. But the um, they had commissioned her to to do these because they were looking at the books as being like truly global, like books that would sell into a lot of countries. And at that point in time, in the early, like, I mean, still early 2000s, mid 2000s, um, there was a point where like a lot of these Scandinavian organizations, well, Iceland was an Iceland being another example, had like very strong literary centers so norla is the norwegian i forget what it all stands for but it's basically to promote uh norwegian literature abroad and they would provide large grants to anyone to do translations and at that point in time they were paying like i think it was 85 to 100 percent of the translation cost for books to get to get translated and for norway despite the fact that like now it seems almost insane to say this given like the rise of nordic noir and norwegian writers and and, you know, the Knossgards of the world. At that point in time, there's like zero interest. Like Norla and Feely was the Finnish equivalent. They had basically given up on the U.S. They weren't getting, they weren't even sending information. They didn't really care because nobody in America cared about their books. Nobody was buying the rights. Nothing was really being translated. It was all just sort of like dead in the water for the most part. And so they funded the translation with the hopes that then if there was an English, they could get German, uh, like German publishers, Spanish publishers, French publishers, all the publishers that exist in, in Western Europe to be able to read it since they didn't really have any editors that were reading Norwegian. The same exact thing happened with the book, The Pets, which was the first work of fiction that we published by Bragi Olofsson from Iceland. 
that book had been fully translated before we ever saw it. And it was all sponsored by this government entity. So it was a different sort of rubric at that time. Um, South Korea did a similar thing for a long time in which they were they were translating in full books that rather than doing samples, rather than like leaving it up to the will of the publisher, the things that they thought were could travel and were saleable, they were investing in upfront to be able to then find publishers for later. So Barbara Hovland um, uh, passed away not too many years after the Discoverer came out, in fact. And um, and so she I don't we had very minimal contact with her. We edited the book, but like she had been like sort of like done with it and had moved on more or less. So it wasn't it wasn't a really close working relationship like we have with a number of other translators. It was more like from from a distance and that it had already been sort of put together prior to our even even acquiring it. Yeah, that's that's such a different model from I think the more contemporary or, or what you've been doing very recently with um, kind of letting working with translators very actively, letting them curate yeah. parts of your list. And so I was just interested as to, you know, how you got um, her to, to, I guess she didn't do it for you specifically, but. but she, and, and there was a UK press that was doing them adjacent to us as well. Yeah, it was Arcadia. And so there was like that sort of interaction there too. And Arcadia was run by Gary Pulsifer, um, who was really dedicated to doing a lot of translations, a lot of interesting stuff. He ended up um, selling the press to, I forget whom, it's now part of, of Macklehouse Press, because but it was passed on from one place to another. And Gary, like he was around the time that the Discoverer came out as well, was diagnosed with cancer and passed away around that same time, like in the like early 2012-ish, 2011, maybe a little bit before that. Um, and so his he was his press lives on to a degree and like is is still there, but like um, that was very sad for for his passing. But he was more involved in that side of things too. I mean, it's interesting also to bring up Arcadia because uh, in just looking into this a little bit, looking into the trilogy as a whole, the um, Arcadia editions, the Seducer has a, a decent cover, but the um, Conqueror and the Discoverer form um, a woman's yeah. body when laid out side by side. So in theory, the Seducer you would think would have a face or a head and it doesn't. So having, having the two open letter titles and the overlook title almost function the same way is, I don't know, some sort of weird publishing cosmic kismet sort 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 of thing, which is, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I thought that there's, um, I thought all three of those tied together, but man. I, I mean, maybe they do, but I definitely saw an image of the three um, laid out that looks, uh, really wild and actually rather unpleasant when all is said and done with with how how it forms but it's also interesting like the time period you're talking about where now if you go into uh, a well-stocked indie bookstore you know you can't throw a stone without hitting a nordic title um from any number of presses i mean verso mm -hmm. at this point is publishing a ton of them as well which is interesting it's just it's interesting how this perhaps bore fruit in a way that they didn't quite expect, but it's also interesting that like the cultural organization of the country is making the call as to what to put out into the rest of the world, which definitely has a shaping uh, impact on how the literature from that country is, is perhaps viewed. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's, 
there's more to that story, I believe, that goes between Aushag and Norla to some degree because they were um, they ended up being not just a publisher, but they're also like an agency. So they're they're probably requesting and doing this based on like what makes most sense um, from their perspective as agents. And I forget who all they represent, um, but it's like the big swath of all of the like big Norwegian authors. And at the time, they were really the only really true large agency and large publishers. So they were kind of like the one stop shop for a lot of stuff. So working with them would make a lot of sense within that context. Less sense now um, that there are like other agencies, other publishers that are a little bit more branched out in terms of Norwegian stuff. But back then it was really like they were they were the big I mean, they're still like one of the biggest publishers, but like they were they were like kind of it. Well, and that's a good, I think, entree a little bit before before we fully launch into the Conqueror proper. But maybe you could say a thing or two about and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation as well or butcher your version of the pronunciation. Um, Sharstead. But um, from what little I can, you know, glean online, these, I mean, these books were sensations in Norway. Bestsellers had a massive impact on the literary landscape. I think, is it the Conqueror that won the Nordic Council right. Prize? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so obviously, like, these, these books were, you know, meteors. They blew up big, all that. But has anything, has any of this other stuff come out in English that you're aware of? Um, and, uh, and where does he, I mean, I guess that, and where does he kind of fit maybe in the, in the Nordic or more specifically Norwegian, like literary firmament at this point? There was one other book that definitely we had gotten a couple either, I don't think there are full books in this case, but a couple samples are longer and there were longer, more significant samples of a few of his other books, but they were earlier ones at the time and EJ wasn't interested in them at all. And I remember they weren't as like stylistically or structurally as advanced. Um, but there is another book that came out from Norvik Press in question mark, because there's no date on this, but it called, I guess, Verge, B-R-G-E. And it, it was translated by Janet Garten, who's also like a relatively new name to me. But that came out at one point in time. But I don't ever remember reading this. To be honest, like I don't, I don't know what would have happened. I wrote about it on our website, and and that's where it recounts like, oh yeah, we did these books way back when. Now this thing is coming out, and I don't know that I even ever saw it in in person. Um, but he was like, he was like one of the literary. There's another guy that was very important at the same time who wrote a book called The Beatles, and he wrote a book called The Half Brother that was also published by Arcadia. And his name is eluding me, um, uh, but I'm going to think about it in a second. But the two of them were like really quite popular. Oh, yeah. Lars Sabe Christensen. Those were the two kind of big figures in Norwegian literature at that time in terms of being like the always nominated for the prizes or winning the prizes. Also like very um, readable. Like there's a there's an interesting kind of way of categorizing Norwegian literature. When I went, I went like right before the pandemic, I want to say it was 2019, it would have been the year before, um, Norway had like a big um, editorial trip for editors from around the world that I was part of. And it was very interesting to, to learn more about Norwegian literature. I read a bunch of stuff that was in translation at that point, like outside of the Knossgaard world. And um, there is a historical trend among their writers where it is close to American storytelling, but like with slightly different like 
advancement in structures and differences where it's not just exclusively that, but there is like a real, like a real uh, interest and sort of uh, adaption of like what we would consider like traditional, you know, strong storytelling. So I think that their books always are primed for like being translated and being promoted because they fit, they fit a certain notion without being, they're like exotic, but not too exotic. They're not too any, they make sense in some weird way as like, uh, storytelling narratives and so they they're that was that was part of it and he's part of that that modality where he's very good at storytelling at gripping you and being like plot driven and more uh you know quick versus like a french book at that time where the sort of perception was french books meander and they don't have a plot and they're about atmosphere and these are more like gripping plotted sort of books which the assumption was that would work better for the American audience. So he sort of fit in there and he, you know, has been overshadowed, I think in a lot of ways by both uh, the Canoscard impact and then by also the crime stuff, because the crime stuff is so large that that's becomes like the thing that everyone's pushing that everyone's talking about. And then you also have, and we had published as part of uh, Delkey's interactions with Norla Jan Fossa, who I discovered through, a sample translation and talking to them, we started doing Jan Fossa books and Fossa and Knoskart have sort of like taken the air out of the room for like literary Norwegian fiction to some degree. That sounds, that sounds more harsh than I mean it to be, but they are sort of like the ones that the reference points that, that people use that are reading or talking about. And Yonesbo, um, they'll use like those kind of references for what Norwegian literature is. Um, and this, and I think that that leads in part to presses outside of ours, not doing as many of these more literary, serious Norwegian authors. This is all speculation. And we actually have um, two Norwegian books coming out this year or within the next six months that are authors that have never been translated. No, that's not true. One of them has been translated in English before, Johan Harstad, um, who was published by Seven Stories with a book called uh, Where Are You Now, Buzz Aldrin? And we're doing a book of his called The Red Handler that's like about a fake made up mystery novelist. Um, and then we have another one by Nina Luque that's called Natural Causes. That's about a woman having an affair. And both of those kind of, well, Red Handler is very experimental in terms of its structure because it's a bunch of fake mysteries and a commentary on these fake mystery novels that are all like four pages long because the the author believed that people didn't want to waste their time reading. So it's much easier to write like four page mystery novels, in which everything solved immediately. And that way, like, people will read them. <laughs> That's kind of like his, his MO. And then Natural Causes does, it has a very cool like back and forth sort of structure with time. Um, but it is, you know, it's a very moving, very like interesting look at a woman at a point in her life in her like early mid forties, um, who's reassessing where she is and like what her life is, her career has been, what her life at home has been, what things are happening. Um, and that fits very well too. Like all these kind of like makes sense within the marketplace. So yeah, so that's kind of like a little bit, a little bit. I I think there's a lot more that could be said about like the true history of Norwegian literature, contemporary literature with that. But I think you have to go dig into stuff that was going on in like the late 90s in particular in the 90s um, as a whole for what was kind of developing among the sort of trends of like that literary fiction that's not necessarily super experimental, um, but is also not necessarily genre based. This is one of the things that's, I think, exciting about reading literature and translation, which is mostly what I t- seem to do, um, is just 
you're you're barely scratching the surface and there's so much more that you could get into and there's so much other history and um i mean publishing history at that that you could really explore and kind of uh find your ways into some very odd corners that in some ways are also a reflection on, you know, the literary society that you yourself um, exist in, live in, read in that, you know, certain things are not being published or the like. Um, Well, one other example that's worth noting on that is that the Biblioasis has been doing the Roy Jacobson books. And I believe that he has a long history of books written in Norwegian that were not necessarily being translated at all. So they have like a, a catalog to sort of pick through. And he's another one that's like slightly older than Sharstad, but not by very much, but also like had the, has this career and has like a moment now in which things are making their way into an English speaking audience. Um, but that the, the he has been working and very well respected and very well like beloved. Like he was a huge deal when I was there in Oslo, everyone was talking about like his new book that had just come out. He came and gave a presentation, the whole deal. Um, but again, like within our world, and I know it's sort of uh, cliche to say, but like if people aren't paying attention, it's easy just not to know. Like we don't, we don't know that this guy is like a really famous, important, really well-respected and talented author in Norway because nobody's bringing it out. Nobody's making it visible. Um, and that's kind of what the, the purpose of Open Letter was, is to find those people. Well, maybe as kind of a segue to get us closer to, to talking about the book, I'll just say that, um, you know, The Conqueror was was the only book that I've read by this author and just because I needed to prepare for the podcast, but it was a happy thing. But it it feels to me a little different than the other Norwegian um, literature that, that I've read. Um, certainly not the crime stuff. Um, and... Um, Jan Fossa, I love his stuff, but very different from that, but also very different than the Jacobson stuff, which I've read quite a bit of and have led book club discussions, which is kind of historical fiction and, and very realist based. I mean, this feels realistic and isn't, isn't kind of dreamy and, and spiritual in the same sense that the Fossa is, but there's some kind of just cool, quirky mix here, I think, of of elements in, in this work. So there's one large thing that I could talk about that if you read all three becomes very evident. Um, and I think is is, an, is is a real marker of what sets him apart from other authors and clo- kind of aligns him a bit with Knoskard. Although with Knoskard, you only see this if you're able to like, he's, much, he's a, also a giant writer, a maximalist writer, but you have to see it as like that whole... But the three books, Seducer, Conquer, and Discover, use three different approaches, not just to like explaining the life of our main character, Jonas Berglund, I think is how I'm not sure how to pronounce that correctly either. But um, the uh, it has different perspectives on his life and on the crime of his wife being murdered, but they're also structurally very unique. So the Seducer is set up as a fugue where every there's a top level story and then it will go back into a flashback, back into a later flashback close off like that first flashback, maybe go to another flashback, then get back to the present surface at the end of that particular movement. But it's very symphonic in that way in which you start here and you kind of move down, move back up and move down and then close out that key, so to speak, in like few music terms um, by getting back to like that present story and sealing that off. 
So it works like that, like a like a symphony, like a piece of music, whereas Conquer is set up to be a circular mosaic. So it keeps looping around the same sort of scenes, but adding to them and expanding on them and expanding on them and expanding on them as it loops and loops and loops and circles and circles and circles, creating this kind of like mosaic pattern that I see as like kind of like a uh, pie piece, like a trivial, trivial pursuit sort of like pie with the different slices in it that starts out in the middle and expands outward. And then the discoverer is much more complex as like a visual, but it's twin narratives and they sort of loop next to each other, almost like a helix, like a double helix, but it's more structured as two voices that are sort of interchanging and moving around each other instead of like something that's quite as like straightforward as the seducer with its ups and downs or the circular nature of the conqueror. This one more is twisted, but they each have that very distinctive overarching structure to them. And then within that, there is like the elements are like mostly realistic, but yeah, they end up with like this weird tone because it's almost like they're having, they're being put into this larger structure, this larger piece. And that is present in a lot of like Knossgaard books, but they're like, his movements are much more glacial. Like in, in my struggle in particular, like it's like a few hundred pages and then that shift happens. And once you read the next few hundred pages, you're like, oh, I see how like these two things are interlocked or these things are put together in this way. Or like the Morning Star, the, uh, it's not most recent book of his, but like the one from a couple of years ago, that too is like a bizarre structure in which there are various voices that are almost, it's almost like a reverse version of um, Bolaño's, uh, uh, oh my God, not 2666, the other one. Um, Savage Detectives? Jesus. Um, Savage Detectives, there's almost an inverse inverse per, uh, setup of that. But those are very, I find that very compelling. And I really like that about uh, the Sharstad books and that they have this kind of visual structural element that is also dictating them. But I agree with you. They're like realistic, but although like the realism is also like, <laughs> to be honest, like a little questionable, like how possible is it that this guy who's a you know a documentarian for like public television is like also like a superstar celebrity among like (laughs) norway's like common people like it just seems like it'd be like if ken burns like maybe if ken burns like possibly murdered his wife it would be like a big name trial but really like i think that the vast majority of people (laughs) know who this was so there is like an element of not surrealism per se but of like you were stretching things a little bit here. <laughs> well, maybe it's maybe the stretch seems more of a stretch to us because we don't live in Norway. Um, and I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm totally wrong and I'm, I'm buying into stereotypes, but Norwegians seem like kind of a serious, very well-read and... I would think they probably watch a lot of public television. So maybe maybe their public TV people are superstars. <laughs> I, I think uh, buying into stereotypes is going to be the name of this podcast episode. <laughs> and we should just indulge from here on out. Um, well, I think that's like that's a really great um, launching off point for talking about the conquer, um, especially Chad, your descript like your description of the visual elements of it. Because one of the things that uh, kind of came up in our like in a preliminary discussion of this via email is um, knots and how often knots uh, recur through through this novel. Um, and I mean, and frankly, the the knotted structure uh, of the telling um, is consistently moving back and forth through time. Uh, the stories are intertwining, um, doubling back on each other. Um, 
yeah, it's it's really rather entrancing in a way because the chapters are short, but there is heft to each one, and you don't quite know what you're going to be encountering in the very next one. But it's likely to have something to do with what you just read, but it could be taking place in um, Verglin's childhood, or it could be taking place right before uh, the murder of his wife. Um, but I guess to quickly, like very brief 30 second synopsis, you know, Lori knows I try very hard not to go for 20 minutes on this, but I always fail. Um, basically the, the, the conqueror is, uh, telling the life story of Jonas Verglund, who is a TV producer, um, in Norway known for a series thinking big, focusing on heroes in Norwegian history, um, and all sorts of heroes, artists, um, politicians, uh, military, etc. So it's kind of telling, telling the heroic story of Norway, um, and it's telling his life story uh, from the perspective of his having been arrested and tried for the murder of his wife, um, and this incredible fall from grace. Um, structurally, it, the stories are being told to a professor that's the most we get of his name who has been contracted to write this biography and other biographies and and one of the things i really enjoy about this novel is it has such a sense of and i think this is a lot of what it's doing a, a sense and critique of celebrity culture whatever that celebrity might be and what happens when these sorts of trials take place um as the the professor interrupts the narrative every so often to kind of offer his perspective and explain what's going on. But he also talks about some of the uh, supermarket biographies that have come out referring to um, Berglund as a, a demon and these sorts of things. Um, but, but also another one uh, called The Seducer, which directly referring to the volume that came before, that has a, a little bit of a different status in, in his mind. But the professor has been contra- contracted to write this um, biography, um, and he's stuck. He has all this material. None of his hypotheses make sense to him. And one evening, a woman appears. It takes a little while to identify that it's a woman. It's mostly just this, the visitor for quite a while, and begins to tell the professor all these stories uh, in order that he combine her telling with his own information to create Verglin's life, essentially. And so, I mean, that's that's what this is. We're, we're getting dropped into different moments in Verglin's development. I would have to imagine almost every single moment the man has sex in his entire life, because there is an incredible amount of sex in this uh, in this novel. Um, or the seducer. Really? I believe so. Yeah, I mean... Wow. That's that 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 takes some. I mean, that a per page sex scene count would be interesting in that regard. Jonas Berglund is sort of Wilt Chamberlain meets O.J. Simpson. Oh my god, (laughs) that's that's also a good that's that's a good subtitle for the episode. Um, Only probably more interesting than either of those guys on the sex on the sex part, and I don't mean to get us off track, Tom, but. Yeah, there are descriptions about incredible sex and he's kind of has this spiritual like seeing the light thing that happens when he's having sex. But um but his whole his whole life, his whole mind is very sexualized. There's, you know, we start out talking about the breasts 
And then he's obsessed with the sweaters and the documentary that he does about the ice skater. You know, it's all about like, oh, she like innovated this ice skating outfit that now everyone wears with the, with the you know, the very short skirt and the tight tops. So, yeah, it, he is he is kind of obsessed, I guess, with sex. I think that that also though plays into some of the elements that make it feel not as realistic. Not not that he had as much sex as he's had, but that there is this mythic quality to his interactions, who he, who each person is in in his life, which you know colors the telling. I mean, like each time it kind of takes. This this woman appeared at the right moment for him to have this first uh, experience that then leads to this next one. And there's a description at one point that uh, actually asking the question, like, why do all these women uh, fall for for Jonas? And it's because of the pressure that's building up inside of him. And like, I mean, there there's this great he's doing this series called, um, you know, Thinking Big about these heroic figures. But the description of his journey is almost a hero's journey. Like it is putting him into a sick, a similar um, rarefied air um, in some ways reinforced by the fact that he becomes this massive celebrity and his downfall is a stain of, is an unasked uh, question about the, the, the Norwegian people. How could they possibly have fallen for this person sort of thing? I mean, there's, there's a lot of critique of celebrity culture, but also I don't know anywhere near enough about Norway, Norwegian politics, Norwegian society to say it, but it feels like this novel is really asking some hard questions about how the Norwegians function or how Norwegian society views itself and views its artists as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think like there's something about those uh, the, those experiences too that does tie into like the conquering notion and the notion of like gaining things and, 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 uh, like not necessarily owning them, but owning that experience and having that be something that you take in. Whereas the seducer is a little bit more like he's, he's more, he's treated much less like, like sinister with like a much, um, there's no like real dark edge. He's just like a really decent guy who happens to like be very, you know, engaging and has all these experiences. Whereas this starts to like point towards that darkness. And I remember um, and you'll have to correct me or cut this if I'm completely wrong. But like when uh, that there is a scene in which they're they're playing hockey, I believe, and has a moment where he's like, and that's when the first moment was that he thought he could kill, or that there could be like uh um and like a uh, like a physical harm that he was capable of. And I remember reading whatever section that is and whatever specificity there was um, as part of like a holiday reading series at, um, at the university, because I was like, well, reminds me of like my times when I think of like Christmas and the holidays, I remember going to like my grandparents' house in Wisconsin and getting into large fights with my cousins in the, in the snow and being pissed off. And so this, this sort of reminded me of that. But um, I do know that this, I remember this book having more of the darkness possible darkness than the other one did the seducer was like much more innocent than in terms of like his character there's this wonderful scene and i don't know maybe it's 80 pages into the book you know, what we said the the chapters are short and they just kind of plop you into like these different moments in uh, the protagonist's life but he's in istanbul with with his wife 
And um, he's totally taken aback by her because he's basically getting mugged, robbed um, in, an, in an area around the souk. And, um, you know, a guy comes up and is like, you know, give me all your money. And he's just passively complying. The wife comes up and basically just very nonchalantly kicks the shit out of the guy that's robbing him. And he's like, you know, where is this coming from? I don't, I don't even know this woman at all. And from that moment, he feels like she took some of the magic out of Istanbul for him because he thinks that um, Istanbul was where he was conceived. And he thinks of himself as the, this kind of like duality, East and West, and some kind of romantic kind of notion. And he realizes that he doesn't know her. She's she's a lot more smart and savvy than he is, probably could beat the shit out of him. And he says at the very end of that chapter, I think I could kill her, which is really interesting. If, if you leave me, I'll kill you, he thought. Yes. And this is coming after, I mean, right, after she does this, I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, some sort of judo toss where she like grabs the guy's hand with the knife yeah. and flips him through the hair and air and disarms him at the same time. And then is kind of like, well, I mean, you gave him, you, <laughs> Jonas is like, he took my money and she's like, okay, whatever. It wasn't much like, and just like, she just disarmed this man with a knife, like, like it was nothing and is totally cool as a cucumber and couldn't care less. And then it goes into this long description of all the, all the rumors he'd heard about her over the years of that. She'd, she'd written a novel, which she had, some people had written a manuscript, but then she then burned it and put it into the Ganges that she studied the martial arts in the far East. And also, love it when it's written as the martial arts I, just the, <laughs> the, the quality there is, is so great um and had she really danced with the famous rock star on the stage during a concert um and on and on and you just you get at so much of and it's such a great great early scene to point out Lori. you get at so much of the insecurity that all this novel is really trying to establish is is a key component of of Jonas that he is desperate to be different and desperate to be one of the special ones. Um, and throughout his life, his various efforts are towards that end. And then he hits upon something in creating this TV series, which sounds interesting, but also sounds at times like so incredibly overdone. Like every episode is a impressionistic work that gets at the core of who this person was, yep. which after he is found, and this is not giving anything away, he is found guilty of murdering his wife. Um, the press rips him apart for his treatment of these of these people. People, some critics say that he actually murdered these heroes by um, creating the episodes the way he did, which is again uh, uh, going back to that notion of conquering. I mean, he he ripped apart and ripped away perhaps um, some of the mystery or some of the heroic quality to these, to these figures. It's, it's one of the, the elements of that too. That's like uh, interesting and, and uh, makes it curious as like the, the public's reaction within the context of the novels is that are these really about those heroes or are they about him making the movies about the heroes? Like, is he as the artist far more important than the people that he is treating 
And that I think is also wrestled with in the notion of the books as a whole in that complicated, strange structure that I was describing is like, he's taking Sharstad's taking this, this imagined life of this character and then making his art a 1500 pages of art around this character and making it all based on, on him. So there's that, that kind of transference of like, when you take something from real life, a real person and make it into your own art and your own thing, are you glorifying yourself or are you actually doing a biography of this person? Cause the first two books are really like biographies that are being written about Jonas. And like that, that is a complicated sort of uh, feature that um, is also treated a lot by uh, in uh, Jacob's room um, by Virginia Woolf deals a lot with like the idea of biography and the biographer. And I always think that that's quite interesting. There is, and just to make a sort of segue joke, the one big review that we got for these books was when the New York Times covered The Discoverer as like the third volume and summing it all up. And the the review is insanely negative um, and begins with like, uh, like kind of the most offensive beginning that you could possibly have, where it starts out saying like, uh, I'll just paraphrase, but it's basically like, you know, when you're asked to review a book, it's one thing when you're asked to review like a trilogy and I had to read 1500 pages of this crap to like write this one book review. And it was like, it's like a really aggressive here. I have it. I actually have it open. If it'll Who load. wrote it. Yeah. I, I am not, I am not surprised that you have it near at hand to quote from verbatim and call out. Go, go for it. Let's go. Yeah, here. here's, here's a verbatim. It's by Tom Schoen. I don't know who that is. Reviewing books doesn't often feel like real work. Not the kind of work that makes you break a sweat or join a union. So when an editor from the New York Times calls you up and asks if you want to review a new novel from Norway, and the novel turns out to be not only over 400 pages long and largely set in a fjord, but also part three of a trilogy, parts one and two of which ran to over 1,000 pages with multiple narrators in a nonlinear time scheme, yes, then you jump at the chance to take your place as a worker among workers. And then goes on to say <laughs> lots of negative shit. There's there's something really screwed up about that notion of work that's running through there, but okay. It's like it's it's very weird. <laughs> but if we can just get back a second, yeah, boo on that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and I don't think he he read these works in a very fair light. He sounds just resentful. Um, <laughs> and that he got the, that he got this assignment that he picked this straw. But the the notion of the conqueror and the idea that the documentaries are more about Jonas as the documentarian than they are about the subjects that the, that the documentaries are allegedly uh, focused on. This is, this is something that Jonas like glams onto very early, it seems um, in his career or in life, maybe just generally that he comes across this idea that to be a conqueror, you don't have to actively do something. You don't have to achieve a big thing. All you have to do is have people's attention. So as long as people are paying attention to you and they're paying more attention to you than they're paying to anyone else, then you, then you are a conqueror. You have conquered. He's He's kind of a very um, wily and cunningly smart dude. Right. And he's also, I mean, he hits upon this idea as well. And it takes a good chunk of his life to, you know, shift into into TV production and TV presenting. Um, 
because he spends a lot of time studying architecture. But um, there's a scene early, um, actually just before the Istanbul uh, scene that we already um, described, where he uh, sees his parents watching the TV. And the way that they're just staring at the screen and taking it in, um, it goes on to say, it seems likely, and this is just a theory, and this happens, this is me breaking in, this happens a lot in this telling where there's this inflection of opinion of what's taking place here. So we're going to relay the facts and we're going to give you some insight into his uh, per, his private life and his thoughts. But we're really just guessing here because we who can possibly know that? Uh, it seems likely, and this is just a theory, that this was the evening on which Jonas Verglund formed his overriding perception of Norway, of Norway as a nation of spectators. And so in order to conquer, all you have to do is conquer their screens. And if you conquer their screens, you've conquered them, which is... I don't know, more than moderately prescient of our contemporary yes. society. Who does, right? that, who does that remind us of? A little bit. Yep. Jonas, Jonas Berglund as the Kardashians. <laughs> I mean, well, the, tying it back into your uh, OJ example. Yeah, I mean, OJ, OJ, OJ gave us the Kardashians in some respects. I mean, uh, yeah, directly. I wanted to ask if I may, or either of you guys, um, this, this kind of, um, double narration that's going on. So the professor is struggling. He doesn't really know where to start. He's acquired all of these notes like Tom explained, and he's, he's got writer's block and he's just kind of without a path. And then he gets a visit by a guy in a black cloak <laughs> who kind of sits him down and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you some stuff about, about Jonas professor. And I'm going to kind of tell you the way that, you know, you need to narrate this and you can't record me, but you better write damn fast because I'm just going to start, I'm just going to start telling you this story. And I thought it was very effective uh, the way that 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 happens and it sounds on maybe for listeners that that it would get kind of weird and murky or confusing but i don't know i i thought that it worked you guys want to comment on that at all i mean i think it's remarkably uh clear like i mean for as much as this is a winding narrative um with all sorts of like cutting back on itself and and yeah, the 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 interjections of these of this composite writer, right? Because the the point of not being allowed to record the stranger, the visitor, is for the professor to blend his information and his writing with the stories he's being told. Um, which again goes into this idea of spectating of the sagas of that sort of mythic quality. Um, but even with all of that, it's so I mean. I think this is just a function of like being like Char said, being a really good writer. Like it's, it's very clean. It, it has fun. It plays quite a bit with structure um, and narrative, but it never loses the reader. It, it keeps you, it keeps you trucking along. It keeps you moving and you pretty much always know where you are or what, what this is a callback to from earlier in the novel. Um, it does not, it isn't playing games like that, I don't think. There's also something to that like idea again of like this person is providing 
a narrative or a stories and then the professor is recontextualizing that into the book so that 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 conversion process that Jonas does with the people that he's covering in his series and converting that into his impressionistic artist very like almost too elaborately artistic um sort of programming that that that's another this is another example of that sort of interaction between life and the construction the craft of retelling something well and also i think i i, I have all these tabs and i'm quite sure i can't find this one quickly um but there's a there's a line uh towards i think the, in the latter third of the novel saying that you know if you tell the story of someone's life it's very easy to make all the details make the person's life incredibly banal that just by like by the retelling you're going to leave out so much of the flavor and the interesting parts and the things that make a person a person um and this is clearly like an effort uh, to prevent that, to actually give some of, I mean, so I'm happy with my very succinct synopsis of this, but a little bit of something that I left out is that the visitor is there in an effort to quote unquote, save a life. They're there to not exonerate Verglund, but to really tell this story for a particular reason. And there are all sorts of almost demonic, like, you know, the Greek version of Damon in terms of how the visitor comes across. I think that's mostly resolved by the end. Like they're grounded by the end. You have a set, you don't know really who they are, but they are a person. They're not just the devil reappearing because they they constantly want to sit next to the fire and complain about how cold it is and all sorts, all sorts of comments that are really, and they're there because they lost a bet. Um, I mean, there's, it's such clever clever language and i don't know there's so much of the 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 sagas the the viking past suggestion of uh, the of the heroic age the heroic nature of what verglin's uh, project is that that injection of a christian morality uh is is kind of interesting is kind of fun to bring even more of some of the the pressures within um Norwegian society, maybe, maybe to bear. Uh, I think I'm gonna keep saying things like that in these podcasts to see if at some point someone like really like smacks back at us for like making far too many assumptions about like Spanish society, Norwegian society, what have you. That might be that might be my game I get to play in the podcast moving forward. We'll see. <laughs> I'll let you take the hits for that, Tom. Uh, that's, what, that's what I'm here for, Laurie. I'll, I'll stand right in front and take this. I mean, this is a, this is a, to, to assert it, this is a, when you mention the spectator thing, this is a country that uh, the most popular TV show that had ever been aired in Norway up until, I don't know when, but like uh, some years ago, this is still the case, was just logs burning. And there was a very famous, um, and they would watch it, like they just watch it. There's a very famous like TV show and book that was just how to chop wood. And it was like literally like a how, to, how to chop wood. Like it, it, there is like something to that spectator notion within the within the books that you're re- referring to that seems to still be a part of uh, Norwegian culture, which I don't know if it's a stereotype, but it is reflected there. I mean, even the Kanaska of the Mice struggle is like basically a spectator situation. You're just watching someone's the intricacies of their life down to like how they wash a dish. Like there, there, there's something about it that is built in there. And I don't know if it's like from the the nature of the environment, the fact that there is a lot of like small towns on the fjords, 
you know, not a lot going on. There's like a big bustling metropolis in Oslo, but even like Lillehammer and some of the other the other places are relatively like rural and small. And and there's a lot of interiority um, within the books that that and within the art that I've seen that sort of fits that. Like another example is Dag Solstead. A lot of his books are like a guy in a room telling this sort of stories or like recounting like what life was like in that that way. Um, but it does, it, I, I don't want to like up your stereotyping game, but there is something to that with like the way that Norwegian culture is, seems to be a lot of like sitting back and watching something that may seem almost banal, but like is is to them like gratifying just to be able to observe and to, to witness it. Thank God we don't have to worry about, I, I, at least I, I think not, The Conqueror being autofiction, which, you know, I think we're all kind of sick of that whole discussion um, that that I, I kind of feel like the Knossgard, my struggle really kind of started everyone being a little bit obsessed about, you know, autofiction and everyone's already tired of it. This might be a good way for you to repackage and uh, repush the books, uh, Chad. Uh, the the idea that this is uh, the anti auto fiction, but on top of it, that it's, I mean, it's almost predicted the TikTok age. You mentioned like log burning and chopping wood. So the most popular videos on social media in general are people just chopping tree trunks in half, or the obsession with ASMR and watching. And this is what, I mean, this is my thing, watching people make hard candy and just the sound of the, like the chopping of the candy at the end after they've spent all this time, you know, molding it. I don't know. It's, it's fun when a book comes out and is hitting on something within its society, but something that is almost even more obvious and prevalent in the moment that you're reading it than at the moment when it was published. Um, I think that's really rather, rather neat. It would be really fun to relaunch the books as like a trilogy all in paperback. The seducer was still, the rights are still tied up. Um, last time I checked in on this, that was a few years ago though. Um, and Peter Mayer maybe had just passed away at that point in time. So like Overlook has obviously undergone different changes since that moment, but there were it wasn't possible. It would have been possible to do two of the three again in paperback, but that just doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, especially with books of this size. Like you really need to have something that there needs to be something like that, that pitch, but like something that then pushes. So it's not just like these exist and nobody, nobody notices, but like these exist and there's like a momentum to read the three of them and not just like two and three. I think you should publish all three in one volume. Do you know how hard that is? (laughs) Um, is Yeah. I've heard, I've heard someone that I know maybe called Chad post that has uh, talked about how very difficult it is to publish a gigantic book in one volume. There's like, there's like one printer in America that can do a book of this size uh, of that, what that size would be. Um, and it's a very expensive proposition. Um, like to do it as one, I mean, you could get really into the weeds, but to do a book that is like 14, 1500 pages or more, um, is basically like you're looking at a printing bill of about $35,000 compared to compared to like $6,000. Wow. <laughs> for like, wow. For like, a, for like a normal size book. But even those, I mean, those, those were rather relatively expensive, but I want to say like back in the day, and this has changed because the paper prices have changed too, which has made doing books of this sort, like 
almost prohibitive. Um, the cost that used to be for for that for those particular books, if I remember right, we're they were probably like three dollars per unit, and now they would be closer to seven, seven and a half. Wow, for each one. So, like the 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 length of things and the pressures, the financial pressures that go along with that are really they're they're it's very tight right now because of the the printing log jam that happened a couple of years ago. The paper price is increasing so greatly, and like the premium on getting things done in a relatively quick fashion it's it's really it's crazy and when you scratch the surface of it you start to see that like the prices in the past four years have doubled like it's just wild it's just wild well i don't want to make it impossible because you already have to obtain the rights to the first volume but yes publish it publish them in a, in a three volume series that would be wonderful too there is there is a place that will give you uh boxes um relatively cheaply that you can put together yourself and package the books in um, which would be very cool too to sell some, uh, you know, prepackaged with a box that has like some connective cover sort of issues with it. It'd be great. I think it would be wonderful. I mean, I'd love to do it. I, I that model I think was used with um, Proust, uh, the Moncrief uh, translation. They did kind of three volumes that have like um, two or three of the books in each volume in, in the one. box. Yes, the silver exactly. Yeah, and those are also like oversized too. Like a, they're like a particularly oversized. I think they're even more than nine by six. I think they're slightly larger than that. They're very unique. I, yeah, I, I like that set too. The other is um, anniversaries by Uva Janssen that New York Review Books did, where they're box. They're in that box set, and you couldn't buy the volumes individually for like the first year or two that that was available. You had to buy the box set because that's another problem. Um, when doing things in, that are parts of trilogies or series in multi-volumes is that one of them sells better than the other two, but you can't really like, you know, dis, you can't have, especially if it's a box that you can't have different numbers of print runs. Um, but yeah, it's all part of the calculus on like what what works. We just need like a, you know, Norwegians have a lot of cash. Um, they all have like their oil money sort of background or like uh, for, their, for the country, you know, great healthcare. They're all, the money is... It's it's so expensive to visit Norway if you're coming from America. They could just you know throw a little throw a little throw a little cash over this way, and we can make that happen instantly. That wouldn't be so hard. So all your Norwegian listeners, just you know, tap in, donate, openletter.org. Give I think we have a, I think we have about twelve thousand Norwegian listeners, Tom. Yeah, something minimum. like that. Roughly. Last time I looked. I I I don't know if, if if we've been pronouncing the names wrong the entire time. Maybe we've lost all of them, and maybe the shit talking I've been doing has lost you know a half dozen. So you know a I, half dozen thousand. So we'll see. I think we've gained some by mispronouncing things so horribly because they're just all sitting back and laughing, 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 saying, "Listen to these dumbos! Like they have no idea how to pronounce our names." Yeah, they 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 have their earbuds in and they they comment to their partner who's busy watching the the logs burn on the TV that you know the, wait till you hear this. I just want to on the logs. I'd like to say that if you enjoy and can sit around for hours watching someone split logs, I think you've probably never split logs yourself. It is horribly difficult and exhausting work. I actually, in the situation that we're in now, in the, the house where I am recording this from, there is a fireplace and we do chop logs and I am jacked for this. I am so excited. I have, I, this is like a dream come true. 
I'm going to chop. I'm going to chop so well. Give me like a month and I'm going to be the best wood chopper there is, Norway. <laughs> Have you started chopping yet? No, I haven't had to. There's still so much. Like there's there's no need yet. Okay. Uh, c- come back in three weeks and tell me how much you're loving it. Oh, okay. I will. And I, I'm I'm serious. This is like a like lifelong dream. So it's really hard work. But I, I I did not I did not see a log chopping competition breaking on this <laughs> podcast today. But there are like there, are. The, the neighbor has one of the like a uh, axe that's like he kept saying hydraulic axe, I believe. That he's like, oh, you can just do it in a second. And he's like, but you're, he's talking to my, to, to Kaya. And he's like, well, your grandfather just did it on his own. Like one, one log every day, did it right here and chopped it until he passed away. And I was like, oh, if your grandfather could do it. Like this ain't hard. Like I've got this. <laughs> I've been yeah. falking up. <laughs> There's the, 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 the radical misunderstandings of the, the hardness of uh, previous generations. Yes. Is, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty rife, r- rife at the moment, but uh, yeah. Tom, what else do we need to say about this beautiful open letter book before we close out? One thing I wanted to quickly just bring up uh, was that we had a very clear manifestation of the uh, Kennedy-Mansfield complex. Uh, We love this complex. It's our favorite complex. um, This is from uh, Javier Maurice's Your Face Tomorrow, and it's the idea of... uh, how you leave this world, overriding everything else about what you've accomplished, which can cut in two directions. It can be a way for someone to be remembered. It's also an existential dread and fear for those who have accomplished things that how they how they go out uh, ends up completely obscuring everything else they did. And um, multiple times in this novel, Verglund is desperately afraid to never be remembered or if he is remembered what is he remembered for which in some ways seems to it suggested drive some of his actions towards the end so i am just pleased as punch that that showed up here that our various uh readings are all slowly intersecting over time but um i think though maybe the one of the last things we should do maybe the last thing that we do today is um something we haven't done in a bit um because we haven't you spent so much time at the end of last season on Marius uh, is associations, other books that we think not necessarily that are like this one, but are good ones to jump to next, you know, off ramps from this one or, you know, roads that make sense, things that just sort of resonate. I mean, we use the word resonate a lot. Other books that resonate quite a bit with, uh, with this one. And I'm ask Chad to go first. Well, I think of some. So you're talking, you mentioned the sagas a couple times. Njal's saga is my, one of my favorite books of all time, which I read really for the first time just this year. I went and helped lead a trip of, of University of Rochester alums through Iceland and read a bunch of the sagas for that. And I think like in relation to this, it's pretty interesting because there is that element of conquering. Of There is like an element of like, from the Icelandic point of view of telling the story of what is the biography of our nation. Um, and in a way, those characters that are in these sagas um, are, are they're still present within Icelandic culture. Things are named after them. They're there. This is like a telling that to them is like, uh, you know, true on a very basic level, but Njal's saga in particular, Egil's saga is another one that's great, but um, Njal's saga in particular is incredibly funny, which you wouldn't necessarily expect but the, the tone of it is very basic, very simplistic, 
in a lot of ways and very funny. Like it's weird. Like there's points where like one character, I mean, there's a woman in there who's basically like murders her husband because he doesn't screw her well enough. There's like, there's like just, and she's like the, she's my favorite. I love her. I would my undying affection to this woman who also like destroys the lives of every man that she touches, but they're like really interesting, well-rounded characters within something that's like, you know, ancient in very many ways, like hundreds of years old and shouldn't be so modern sounding um, based on what you'd, you'd think. Um, but they're really, really fun. They sort of tie into this in a weird way and sort of give a groundwork for the sort of narrative storytelling that's present within a lot of uh, Scandinavian and Norwegian and Nordic writing that is uh, semi-plot driven, but with these cool characters and with like an interesting sort of half ironic, half like adulation sort of sense of things. I love it. Like I didn't, it was not something I was like, oh, I'm going to have to read this. So that, like if anyone asks me a question, I'll be able to like, you know, at least give them a partial answer. And by the end, I was like, all of our lectures are about the sagas. I'm not talking to you about anything else. We're just going to talk about all of this because I can't stop reading them. And I love it. That's my recommendation. That was enthusiastic. That that was fervent. That's for sure. Um, Lori, anything? Oh, man. Um, I'm, I've been thinking just really fast since you asked this question and I'm all over the place. Okay. Uh, one part of me is like, well, this is kind of like a picaresque tale, right? Like how did this guy evolve in his life and how did he, um, get to become this dude? Um, so one part of me is thinking like Dickens, like David Copperfield, but I'm not sure that's feeling very right to me. Another part of me is thinking Somerset Mom of human bondage. But of course, Jonas isn't quite as pathetic as the protagonist in in that book. And he doesn't get pushed around by, you know, um, the woman, I think, quite as much. But and this is going to just seem like I'm kissing up. But I'm also thinking here of another open letter title. And it's Tirza by Aaron Gunsberg. Um, and I think it's the the kind of not very apparent, in some respects, violence that a character could be capable of. Yeah. Um, Chad's, Chad's nodding at that, maybe because he published Tirza and it is an awesome book, which we should talk about someday, um, Tom, out of the backlist. But I don't know. Do you think that's a, that's a fair comp? That's really interesting because, yeah, it is it- – does have uh, thematic elements that are linked there. And there is like a trickiness to the structure, even though it is straightforward, like straightforward storytelling in a lot of ways. It is propulsive. It is well-rounded. His, I don't know if you've read his new book, but Goodman might not be as necessarily as conquer inflected, but it's also absolutely wonderful. Um, although you will never look at carrots the same way again. Oh, Wow. That's, that's, that's almost like reason to read it. I have a copy of it. Um, thank you, Chad Post, um, for the arc. Um, I need to get to that one. I, I, that book literally, I, Grunberg is such a good writer and we are doing more of his books, but Goodman in particular, when I was proofing it, like Kaya had edited it and was like, oh, you know, I can't stop reading this. She'd be up to like two or three in the morning working on it. And then I started reading it to proof it. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to stop. Like, this is one of the few times where I'm not like, this is a chore to like, 
be like focusing on every word. Is it spelled right? Is this the same as it was before? Is t-shirt hyphenated and all that kind of crap. I instead I was just like, this is so good. I need to know what's going to happen next. I need to keep going. I don't know where this book is going to lead. I don't know where, where it's going to end up. And it's incredibly satisfying. Okay, Tom. So you teed this up. So you've got to have a whopper in mind. I mean, I I don't is the problem. Um, and you're all so you've just are, been are you've just better. been buying time. I really have. That's why you think I asked Chad to go first. Like I had absolutely no intention of kicking this off. Though now I feel like maybe I'll edit the podcast such that I do go first, and you your your great picks overwhelm mine. Um, I think. Uh, it's interestingly, I think um, two French writers kind of jumped to mind a little bit for very different reasons. Um, Lauren Binet, uh, with there's just a sense of humor in his books that's a little bit more pronounced than maybe in The Conqueror, but um, I don't know, it just sort of jibes right. There's something, there's a lot in the seventh function of language that is just so enjoyable and so quirky and so true to how people interact and behave and view each other that really feels, yeah, it's, it's not as much of the, maybe the pathos of the conqueror, but there's, there's definitely something kind of humming along together there. Um, And then the other one is uh, a lot of uh, Jean Eschenaz's work. There's a quality, I mean, he is not especially funny. I mean, he is funny, but he's funny in a very like French way, I would say, which is, man, I'm just coming for everyone today. But there, there's there's a way in which he constructs his characters and the types of characters that he's interested in creating that really reminds me of um, the various characters that populate this novel. Um, from like the quirkiness to the hidden motivations to how much they change over time. Um, to the surprisingness of, of how people choose to act and behave that um, I really think makes a lot of sense there too. There are, there are multiple modes of Eshenos too. Like the early books like Cherokee and Double Jeopardy and I'm Gone uh, to a lesser extent, but those ones that are very like quasi mystery books, those are very, those do have a good sense of humor to them. Even Chopin's move, which he did at Dalkey has like all this, I mean, it's all based on like, flies that can like uh spy on you like there's a like a weird sense of humor to it but then tying into conqueror 2 there's the the trilogy like the one about the runner um and we are not when we rebel and then um who's the third character but there's like the trilogy that are like biographical books that he wrote but they are like strange biographies because they don't focus on the right the right kind of pieces that you would expect in a biography which then relates to we're talking about with Jonas Wergland's like that, that idea of like, what are you creating and what are you, what, what life are you telling and how are you telling that life? And those three books, like all of the Eshenos books are so short. They're so wonderful. Cause they're just like quick, they're quick reads, but like, like dense an idea, but not hard to, they're not time consuming. They're not hard to read. They're very like enjoyable, like one day sort of uh, deals. I can't think of what the last one was. It's called special, special envoy, special, something uh, no it is special envoy that book is the darkest ending i have ever read um and then and also like in in the mode of sort of having a bit of a mystery quality to it but also some weird weirdly funny things going on big blondes is one Ooh, i've right. always gotten a kick out of yeah yep. i forgot about that one there's all those that that university of nebraska era is is particularly good they did a lot of interesting books right there 
for like a 10, 15 year period. And then uh, they got a new director who didn't care and all that sort of ceased. Such as universities not to take a shot at stereotyping something else that one can uh, <laughs> make fun of. I think I think this episode this episode will be the one that is just called the one where they all come for us or <laughs> something like that. But um, I think that's a really great place to leave off. Chad, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun um, and a lot of really great. I don't know, like in the weeds stuff about publishing and publishing in tra- works in translation in the U.S. and that's. I, I I've always found that interesting. So I think that's a really cool thing to to bring into it. So thank you for that. No problem. It was really fun to talk to both of you. I love this and I love the podcast. So everyone keep listening and subscribe, tell your friends. And let's have everyone get on the open letter website. Look at the fantastic catalog of books. This is a publisher that if you've not read anything published by open letter, um, just remedy that right away. Um, and if you need some, some suggestions, I'm sure Tom and I can load you up. We've mentioned several titles here today, so, um, have fun with it. Absolutely. Well, um, until next time, uh, talk to you then, Lori. Okay. See you later. <laughs>